Good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. Thank you for being here and braving the uh, rain, and uh, I don't know if it's thundering yet, but they say it might. So um, one of the things that I tell my students is, you know you're getting old when it's about to rain and you think, oh, this is going to be so good for my lawn. So if you, if, you thought, if you thought that, you're old. Hey, um, about 10 years ago, Lisa and I had the opportunity to go to the 10-year reunion at that time of the class of 2001 at Lakeshore High School. And so we were kind of, you know, mingling and catching up with some of my former students and, and her former players. And two of the uh, newlywed married couples um, that just got married that summer were telling us how they all live together now, like as in both couples, all four people in one house. And you don't see that every day. And so we asked them like, well, what's that like? How's that going? And the, the wives were hesitant, let's put it this way. They were like, oh, it's, it's pretty good. There are some challenges. I looked over at the two guys. They were looking sideways at each other with these big grins because they were like apparently staying up till all hours of the night, like ordering pizza, sitting on the couch watching ESPN. They absolutely loved this deal, right? So, um, you know, Lisa, I could tell, was like shocked and more than a little horrified. And so when she looked over at me as they were telling this story, I tried my best not to look envious, okay? Uh, but, but the truth was, I was like, oh, that sounds so great. Uh, look, we can all look back, I think, on high school or college or summer camp or a team we were on, um, some season when we did life together when we would come together over and around a, a bunch of different things maybe, but we probably remember those times with a lot of gratitude, with some nostalgia. Now, why is that? Is it because of the things we did? I'm sure that had something to do with it. I mean, who doesn't enjoy using a water balloon launcher to, to launch rotten bananas over the dorm into the quad? Just as a random example, okay? <laughs> but I wonder if there's more to our treasured memories than the things that we did, the what. I, I think there's more to it, that, to, to it than that. Could it be that there's, it's just something about being together, that there is a power to belonging. There's a power of belonging. This summer we've been reading through the book of John together, and this morning we are in chapter 11. And frankly, it's one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. It's where Jesus raises his friend Lazarus back to life. And I've done quite a few talks here at Storyline and in other places from John chapter 11. I've done too many funeral messages from John chapter 11 as well. And yet every time I reread this story, I am struck by the awe and the beauty and the brilliance of Jesus. It's just incredible. He's amazing. And once again, there's something that happens in this story that I, that I think just, it blew me away when I, was, when I was reading through it for this morning. And this morning I want to focus on a detail that I think has a lot to do with the power of belonging, with holding on together, with coming together as a community. It isn't the main point of this miraculous story, I'll, I'll admit that, but I think it's an important detail and one that I think is easy to miss. So the context of, this, of the situation of the story in John 11 goes like this. Word is sent to Jesus from two sisters, Mary and Martha, that their brother and Jesus' friend Lazarus is really sick. 
And so Jesus travels to their village, and by the, but by the time he gets there, Lazarus has died. And then this is what the Bible says in John chapter 11. Many people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. And when the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep, so they followed her there. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, basically the same thing that her sister said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up from within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. And they told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled in front of it. And he said, roll the stone aside. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. Now, throughout the book of John, we have seen Jesus perform many miracles, or what John often calls signs. Uh, turning water into wine, healing a blind man, and now this, obviously, is the biggest one, right? Like Jesus resurrecting the dead. And it was a huge deal. Everybody heard about it, Jesus' fame. He goes from being like this growing uh, having some growing fame to it explodes in ancient Israel at, at this point. Okay, this sent shockwaves throughout this tiny little country. But this morning, instead of focusing on the big, spectacular, what we think, I think, is the point of the story, I'd like to highlight something that I think is really beautiful. And it's this miracle before the miracle, if you will. It's, it's like running in the background of the miracle. It's what makes the miracle miraculous. If this wasn't true, coming back to life wouldn't be such a big deal. And it's this. I want you to notice in this story, in Mary and Martha's worst moment, in their nightmare scenario, they were surrounded by people who deeply care for them. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were very close friends of Jesus, and wherever Jesus went, he seemed to generate this deep and vibrant community. Let's look at this passage again. Many people had come to console the sisters. Many mourners were by their side. Other people were wailing with the sisters. This, I would contend, is the miracle that makes the miracle miraculous. Lazarus and his sisters were deeply embedded in a community that loved them deeply. Which brings us to our question for this morning. Why belonging? Why is that so powerful in moments like Mary and Martha were experiencing? Why is it so powerful when we think back to high school or college or in earlier phases of our life that we did it together. Why is it so powerful? Why does God want to bring us together into community? So um, 
Lisa and I are not really huge concert people. We've been to some. Uh, I'll just go ahead and admit, I've been to, to, to many, many James Taylor concerts. Love him. Um, we've even seen the Statler Brothers at the fair, which I think is mandatory for everybody in, from Berrien County when, when you're growing up. Uh, but several years ago, uh, we were given tickets to a concert, and we liked this band, so we were expecting it to be fun, and then this happened. So that uh, was from the Elevation Tour of the band called U2, and um, we love U2, and we're expecting it to be good, but we were not expecting that. Like the enormous, like this existential power of belonging when tens of thousands, and in this case, and we saw them in Chicago, that was in Milan, Italy, 135,000 people. We didn't, I did not, I'd never experienced anything like this, this existential sense of belonging when 100,000 people are singing every word to every song for two and a half hours. Unbelievable experience, I'll never forget it. So what is it that's going on here when we have experiences like this, when we rush the field as a team after a, a big victory, when we reach the top of the mountain with a group of friends, when, when a great goal that we struggled for is achieved, why does it move us so deeply on a level that's beyond anything that we can explain or express? Why is all of this so powerful, living together, singing together, playing together, belonging. Well, German theologian uh, Rudolf Otto, I think, has one of the coolest explanations for it. He called it a creature consciousness, or the creature feeling, and he defined it this way. It's the frightening but fascinating feeling of smallness we experience when we are in the presence of something transcendent. It's when you know you belong to something bigger than you, that's beneath you and before you and beyond you. What if we're hardwired by God to long for and seek out this creature consciousness? Could it be that we love to live in community and to struggle together, and to climb together, and sing together, and strive, and, and encourage one another, and just to be together, because it's through belonging like that that we experience the transcendent, this creature feeling, or this creature consciousness. One of Jesus' first followers was a man named Peter, and he wrote about God's desire for his children to live together, to be all about belonging. And this is what he told the early followers of Jesus. As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. I love that image. See, Peter is talking about what it looks like when, as individuals, we follow Jesus, and according to him, this is not something we can do individually. As God comes into our lives, we come together. 
we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. He's talking about, and everyone would have known this at the time, he's talking about a temple. Now, temples in the ancient world were these sacred spaces. They were literally buildings where the divine presence of God dwelt on earth, okay, where the deity dwelled. And different religions would have different temples for different gods, if you will, okay? But this is one of the first, like, early curveballs that Jesus threw in, out there into the world. Because he's going to insist that God doesn't live in buildings. He lives in people. That his Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of those who let him in who've accepted their acceptance. So while the Bible is clear that God's presence inhabits people individually, it doesn't stop there. This is where it gets so cool and so fascinating to me. When we begin to follow Jesus, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you may have heard that before. But here's the thing, really interesting thing about this. There's only one place in the Bible where the temple is talked about like on an individual basis, like, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're another different temple and I'm another separate temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not the image that the Bible portrays when it talks about the temple of the Holy Spirit. In all but one passage of the, of the Bible, this holy temple where the presence of God dwells on earth is always a collective. It's always a community always except for one place so what peter is saying here is we become the temple of the holy spirit as we are being built together as we live together as we do life together as we strive and struggle together to create a community that begins with belonging a community of belonging and purpose and meaning. And don't miss this part. God doesn't dwell in communities of faith that have successfully like, accomplished this. That's not what they're saying. That's not what Peter's saying. That, that you know, God's only dwelling in the communities that have all their ducks in a row, that don't make any mistakes. They have no inaccurate beliefs. They've cleared out the riffraff. They've got all, only the good people in there. The term being built is in what is called the present progressive tense. And it means that this is an ongoing process and that the process itself achieves the goal because the process is the goal. Now, I know that this is a little bit hard for us to all take in, but I love the way that Simon Sinek kind of uh, talks about this. The Navy SEALs are one of the highest performing organizations on the planet. And a former Navy SEAL was asked, who makes it through BUDS? Who makes it through the selection process to become a SEAL? And he said, I can't tell you who gets through, who makes it, but I can tell you the kind of people who don't make it. He said the star college athletes that never have been really tested to the core of their being, none of them make it through. He said the preening leaders who like to delegate everything, none of them make it through. He said the big tough guys that come in with huge muscles covered in tattoos who want to prove to everyone how tough they are, none of them make it through. He said some of the guys that make it through are skinny and scrawny. He said some of the guys who make it through, you will see them shivering out of fear. He said, but every single one of them who makes it through, when they're emotionally exhausted, when they're physically exhausted, 
some way, somehow, they're able to dig down deep inside themselves to find the energy to help the person next to them. Service. Service. Giving to another, having their back, is what makes the highest performing teams in the world. Not their strength and not their intelligence. It's their willingness to be there for each other. I think the Navy SEALs understand something that sometimes the church forgets. That expertise, that strength, that accuracy or intelligence or having everything put together isn't nearly as important in, in true communities as having people who are willing to put others first, whose first instinct is to serve, is to be all about community in this ongoing process of being built together. That is, what, that is why, or one of the reasons why, Peter's talking like this. I was in Kidport this summer, and I was with the little ones, with the toddlers, and it went much better this summer than it did before when I for forgot to give out the snacks. I barely made it out of there alive. Um, and so we were sitting down, um, you know, in this, uh, we were building something, I don't know, out of Lincoln Logs, and uh, every so often, one of the kids would decide, hey, I want that one for myself, and just snag one of the Lincoln Logs, or that log should go over here. And of course, you know, the whole thing would just kind of fall apart, and then there was arguing and fits and, uh, yes, tears, but I thought the kids did, especially for being how little they were, an especially really good job at calming me down, okay? <laughs> Saying that, Mike, it's okay, we can start over, all right? So we, we would start over, we'd get right back at it. But the point is, the beauty, the power, the togetherness was not in the finished product. It was in the construction. It was in the process of putting together what it is we were putting together. That's the image that Peter is, point, is painting of where God dwells. It's not a building, it's not a service. It's in people who are in that process. It's in community attempting to construct life together, however imperfectly. And it's a very slow and an imperfect process because every individual is a living stone. I mean, think about it, in a stone wall, every stone has others that depend on it. And many, uh, many that depend, that they depend on. So if one stone shakes, they all shake. If one breaks, the others are compromised. If it's pulled out, the other stones could fall. And right here, I think, is where the problem is with many of our conceptions of, many of our contemporary conceptions of the church. See, most people, we just think that the, the church is over there, it has an address, it's that place, and we go to that place at that time to do this to, for this service. And church is a place and it's an event, but that isn't at all what God is, is bringing us together for. The question is, are we so built into the lives of a community of faith that if we didn't show up, things would collapse? Like a Lincoln log being pulled out of a, a little thing you're building do we belong to any group or community like that like we are living stones
You know, what if, what if it's to the degree that we're being built together with others, that's the degree to which we can in, God can inhabit our life? What if that's the limiting factor for how we experience God? Maybe that's how we experience God in deepening degrees. That is how we come face to face with the transcendent and are transformed into the best version of ourselves. It is, to, it is in the process of being built together and joining God on his mission to love the world right. I think what Peter is trying to tell us here is that we can't expect to be part of a different, we can't expect to be a different kind of girl, we can't expect to be a, a part of a different kind of world if we aren't riding together. We aren't rolling together in community. If our life is devoid of the kind of belonging we were made from, remember, we've talked about this before recently, actually, that God is a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If our, if our life is devoid 
of the kind of belonging that we were made from and the, the kind of life that we were made for, we can't expect to be a different kind of person. And we certainly can't expect to be a part of a community that's creating a different kind of world. So that kind of tweaks our question a little bit to something like this. Why does the spirit dwell when the creature feeling happens? Or only as we are being built together as living stones into the temple of God. Now look, and there are many ways that true community or belonging, or yes, we could call it church, could cultivate the life we were made from and the life we were made for. And we could talk about this for years, and essentially in one form or another, that is what we're talking about when we come together. But I'd like to consider just a couple of ways that that kind of being built together into that kind of community is where and how we experience God more deeply and we become more our true selves, and we help God change the world and love it right. So one of the greatest joys in my life has been to play basketball with my son. He's 25 years old now, and you know, as he was growing up, he was too young to play with me, and I think every dad gets this, you know, you're like, am I gonna get too old too fast to get to play with him? And we had this window of time when he was in his teens where I wasn't horrible yet, and he was not so good that we could actually play together, and sometimes on the same team, sometimes not, but it was really, really fun. And one time we were playing at Tom Austin's house, and um, as we did probably too much, <laughs> but, um, and I, it had not gone well for me. Okay, let's just put it that way. Now, I am, let's, how do you put this? As a basketball player, I'm, I have a lot of perseverance. I'll just keep shooting. That's just another way of saying this, all right? It doesn't matter if I'm missing or all the time or not. I just, I figure, you know, something's got to happen at some point. Well, anyways, I, I played very, very poorly. And afterwards, Jimmy was frustrated because his team and my, my team, we, we lost, and it was my fault. And so he goes, Dad, your shot is so flat. And I was like, excuse me, I taught you how to shoot. In fact, I taught half the people here how to shoot. I'm the shot doctor. Like, I fix shots, that's what I do. So how can I have a flat shot? I know that you're not supposed to shoot flat, you're supposed to shoot it with a lot of arc. Jimmy just shook his head, kind of look over, looked over at me, just you know, totally like, oh my gosh, d disgusted with me. He goes, Dad, you can't see your own shot. Oh my gosh, just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, you're right, I can't see my own shot because I'm shooting it. See, one of the ways that belonging or being built together into the temple of God as living stones interdependent on one another gives us life is because we can't see our own life. We can't see our own life. I don't know if you're familiar with this tool, but it's called a Jahari window. That's what this chart is, and it's just a tool being used in this case as a way to describe the different ways that we can and can't see ourselves or be seen by other people. It's a, a Jahari window. And the upper left-hand quadrant is what is called the open self. This is the things that you know about you and others know about you. So for instance, I'm a UCLA fan, right? Now, by the way, did you see yesterday's score? UCLA crushed Alabama <laughs> State. And, um, 
now, now look, you guys all know I'm a UCLA fan. I know that about me. You know that about me. This, the open self, is where life feels best, okay? Where we are truly free. Like where we're living with nothing to hide, nothing to prove, nothing to fear, nothing to lose. The lower left-hand quadrant is the hidden self. Okay, this is what you know about you, but others don't. So like maybe in middle school when all your friends were listening to this band and you were secretly a huge fan of this singer, okay? Just as a random example. <laughs> Totally random example I'm using there, okay? This hidden self, <laughs> all right, is where life can feel secretive and lonely, maybe even shameful, okay? The hidden self. And then um, the upper right-hand corner is the blind self. This is the information that others know about you, but you don't know about yourself, that you have broccoli in your teeth, your fly is open, you have a flat shot, okay? This is like where self-unawareness will lead us into embarrassment or regret and maybe even down the line resentment of others. And then the lower right-hand corner is the unknown self. This is everything that's true about you that you don't know yet. And everything that's true about you that nobody knows yet. And you could think of this almost as like your untapped potential. It's, it's things that, that, the, that God wants to give the world through you, but you have not yet uncovered and discovered those things. Well, when we begin to accept our acceptance and step into communities of faith in the grace of God, that means that we not only are allowing God into our life, it means we are coming together we're being built together into a true community, living stones to make this temple where God dwells. We are being built as interdependent living stones into a temple, the Holy Spirit, a true community, the church. Here's what happens, okay? Our open, free self, that upper left-hand quadrant begins to expand. It starts to grow. So in one direction, it grows through feedback from others. Our blind self shrinks. Dad, you have a flat shot. Oh, I was blind to that. I didn't know that. Thank you for the feedback, <laughs> right? Sometimes. But through self-disclosure to others, our hidden self shrinks. I'm a Barry and Manilow fan. What can I say? Okay, I'm unafraid to share that with someone. And as those two quadrants shrink what inevitably happens is we're being as we're being built together like that through shared discovery now i'm uh, telling telling you stuff about me you're telling me stuff about me the untapped potential starts to go from being unknown into the known it changes quadrants and our untapped potential is shifted into the open this is what we were made for this is what we long for it's what jesus promised us in chapter 10 the last chapter that he called life to the full life to the full and it's just one reason why the bible says that god dwells he lives he lives in the process of being built together 
And there's a lot of other reasons that God is calling us to, into, into a community, okay? But there's one more that I want to share this morning. In the last 10 days, I've lost two very dear friends. Many of us knew John Williams. He sat right over here for years. He's very kind, very encouraging man. There was almost, there is not a week where I did not hear from him, or we would get together, or he would say something wonderful and encouraging to me in some way. He was a huge Cubs fan, for which I told him there is forgiveness available. But John uh, actually was a minister himself for many years in the unity religion, a religion I was not familiar with before John. He started coming to Storyline about 10 years ago, and then about five years ago, he was baptized at one of our summer brunches. John is going to be really missed by a lot of people, myself very much included. And another dear friend, Keith Avery, passed away last week. Keith was only 59 years old, and I've known him since I was a little boy in many different contexts. Just a dear, generous happy, kind, faith-filled man. Both John and Keith taught me things about God, showed me things about life and myself that I never would have known if it were not for, the, for us being built together into the temple of God. In, in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis describes what happened when one of his closest friends died. This is what he wrote. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am simply not large enough to call any person completely into activity. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, far from having him to myself now that Charles is dead, I have less of Ronald. In this friendship or community or togetherness or belonging or the church, it exhibits in a glorious nearness to heaven itself where those in heaven increase the enjoyment which each has of God, for every soul seeing God in their own way communicates that unique vision to all the rest. I think that's such a beautiful way to describe why people become so dear to us. Now, if it takes a community to truly know another person, how much more true is it for knowing God? We can't know God by ourselves because he's too big and we're too small. If we aren't being built into the temple of God, if we hold ourselves back, our perspective, if we hold that back, our view, if we hold that back, we're denying others of something only we can see. This is why it's so important to God. We aren't just Lincoln Logs, each of us just replaceable with the next. Peter says that we're living stones, stones. Each is absolutely has a unique shape. That's, and there's a space just for you. 
And just for me in that living stone wall, you are absolutely one of a kind, totally essential. You're the only person that can fill that space in this structure that God calls his home. And this is why Storyline is so big on belonging. It's why we begin with belonging. Maybe it'll help to think of it this way. For the religious, belonging is the promise. It's like bait that is dangled. Like if we know that what you really want is belonging, so you can have it, but you've gotta believe the right way and you've gotta behave the right way. And then you can belong. But for Jesus and his way of grace, belonging isn't the promise, it's the premise. It's the miracle running behind the miracle, underneath it, before it, beyond it. Everything starts with belonging. It isn't bait. Belonging is the source of life. It's the goal of life. It's what we were made from. It's what we were made for. And that's why it is so, so powerful and why we long for it so much. It's the great promise of life, too. But to use it as bait, to leverage this God-giving desire that we have to belong by offering only to people who do the dance and say the chant the way we think they should is the most cynical form of religion. For far too long and for far too many, the hidden self and the blind self and the unknown self has been our experience of life. It's a function of just kind of faking our way forward so that we can belong. But this is something that community of great, communities of grace have to end, as Jesus did, by beginning with belonging. That's why he began with belonging. That, and that's how people see that God is faithful and we can be confident that the walls that separate us from God and separate us from one another, that sometimes we've erected, that sometimes the religious have erected, they have fallen under the weight of God's love for us.
Lazarus died, Jesus comes to his tomb. 
And I want you to notice something about this. There's so many things. Like, this is one of the reasons I love rereading these stories over and over again, because there's always something that jumps off the page that I've never seen before. I want you to notice what he didn't do, what he didn't say. He didn't say, Lazarus, come alive. He didn't say, Lazarus, rise from the dead. He said, Lazarus, come out. Come out. It's almost as if after the stone is rolled away, Lazarus is raised from the dead, but he just stayed in there. (laughs) It's like alive, but alone. Alive, but alone. A feeling I know that many of us know all too well. Maybe the miracle that made the miracle of his resurrection miraculous was Jesus is inviting him to come out of hiding, to come out into the light where he can be seen, to come out and belong and take his unique and essential place in a community of faith that's slowly but surely being built together into the temple of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and for this opportunity to be together. We want to lift up to you the Williams family and the Avery family as they grieve the loss of their loved ones. We thank you so much for your promise in this passage in John 11, that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you so much for that. God, I pray that this week you would Show us that you would give us opportunities to come out of hiding, to allow ourselves to be seen, and give us, show us the opportunities in our lives to, to be built together as living stones. And we take those opportunities, or if it need be, make those opportunities. And I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for coming, folks. See you next week.